0: I am uh, pleased to welcome back to Westminster class Dr. Lloyd today. Dr. Lloyd's been with us before, and for most of you, he doesn't need an introduction. But he is uniquely qualified to talk to us as he uh, teaches uh, rhetoric, linguistics at Kent State. And one of his interests in teaching is uh, teaching of the Bible. And he always creates new lectures for us. You guys don't know how lucky we are to have his creative vein uh, put to work just for us. We've had a, uh, we've had a busy uh, fall, and uh, a lot has been thrown at you. Pastor Michael and the, uh, the committee have uh, decided that after Dr. Lloyd, now again, we've got four weeks with Dr. Lloyd, so you've got four weeks to think about this. After Dr. Lloyd, we're going to uh, have a question-answer a couple of weeks just to kind of give us a break and allow you to ask questions related to what we've covered before or that you might have other questions uh, about uh, the Bible and its origins. And so to do that, we have a basket here. I'm gonna leave it right here with paper. Take, it, take one, take one home and think about it. If you have questions today, write it and drop it in. And what we're gonna do is take those and try and put together a one, two, and maybe even three weeks To answer your questions, to have a discussion, and if need be, even invite uh, one of the lecturers back. And uh, we think this would be a nice kind of decompression period right after the holidays, but more importantly, it'll speak to your heart because there are questions that you have. So feel free to take the paper, participate in it as you feel uh, your heart, your mind has questions, and we'll try to answer them with uh, Pastor Michael and any of our previous lectures. Uh, if you will, let's open in prayer. Father God, certainly you reveal yourself to us in many ways, including prophets, but even in our daily lives, and this week certainly was a festive time of thanksgiving, and I think about the meals and the preparations that all of our families did. And, I, and as I got up from the table, I was reminded that Christ also was tempted after 40 days of preparation, not just a day of fasting to get ready, but for 40 days, and he was tempted by the devil himself. And his response was, Man does not live by bread alone, but by the Word of God. And as I, st- as I thought about the class today, Father, I just hoped and prayed that we would come to that same conclusion that in our times of want, in our times of need, in our times of temptation, We realize the importance of your word, and thus this class, and I pray for his blessings on Dr. Lloyd and each of us, that that your word might sustain and nourish us as it did our master. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Hello, how's everyone doing this morning? It's nice to see a lot of you again, some new faces. Um, I'm Dr. Lloyd. I'm, as he said, I'm at Kent State Stark, a professor of English there, and I do teach the Bible as literature every couple of years. There's another professor that likes to teach it who doesn't do it as well, but I didn't say that. <laughs> you didn't hear that, and I didn't say it, and we just recorded it for the podcast. Okay, so it's just a joke, Robster. Okay, so... Uh, part-time, comedian. part-time comedian, if you don't make it funny, they won't cry. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? A friend of mine said that years ago. He said, if you can make someone laugh, you can make them cry. And I was like, that's really kind of awful thing to say. But he meant like an audience. All right, so what I, I just for some context is uh, when I found out I was going to kind of slated to do the letter Prophets, I was not very excited because I find the earlier prophets more fun. Like Elijah and Elijah, they did a lot. They healed people. They did crazy things, right? But uh, the latter prophets, they didn't do a whole lot of that kind of thing. They mostly just preached and yelled at people. And and some of them did some very interesting things that we'll talk about. But one of the, the main things that they did, they were concerned about, is this whole idea of the image, the idol. And idol worship. So I thought, man, I don't want to just talk about what everybody else talks about. So I'm not really going to talk about the prophets yet that much. But but what I'm going to talk about is the thing that they were concerned about, which is idolatry. And the thing that bothered me about this is, and I'm starting to think this about everything that I think about, why? Because it's like, okay, they keep falling back into idolatry. Why? And then... If it's like they were tempted by the gods around them, the the people that what they worshipped around them are like. Well, why did they worship gods? So I really want to answer this question psychologically. What do we get out of it? Because there must be a benefit, or people wouldn't keep doing it. Yes, we still do it. You go to uh, Elvis's house. It's not far off. Now you can go there and just enjoy being there, and you know, or you could worship Elvis, which is weird. So where's that line between? Am I making any sense here? It's just like when I found my father's Bible and I found the notes that he made in the Bible. They were more significant because who wrote them? Yes. So I get it that we have that sense that some places and some things are special. And I think that's rooted in why we do this sort of thing. Okay, now this is a picture that I wanted, I'm kind of wanting to challenge this, uh, the idea of this picture. But what kills me is it's called Josiah, or Josiah would be the way he would have said it. Smashing Idols. Look at the name of the website. God Loves Kids. It's like, it's always good to teach your kids about smashing idols. (laughs) Come on, kids, let's gather around the table. Let's smash some idols. And do you see the irony that the blog uses an image to tell us to smash idols? Because the first card of the commandment is don't make any kind of an image, right? And then don't bow down to it. That's what the commandment actually says. So some background. Um, What I want to do is think about when the prophets emerged and why they emerged as the literary prophets. Why weren't Elijah and Elisha literary prophets? They didn't write down things. Jeremiah actually had everything he said written down. All of them did. They their teach, their disciples. Someone wrote these things down. In some places in Jeremiah, it says I, which means he wrote it. So why did they write it down? In the height of the period of the so-called literary prophets, a long-lost copy of the law was discovered and brought to Josiah, king of the southern kingdom of Judah. You know, Josiah, the idol destroyer. It was the book of what we think is the book of Deuteronomy, which means the second book of the law. Yes, there was Exodus. Ex Adas, the way out. Yes. (laughs) And then Deuteronomy, the second book of the law. So they find this book and they adopted a program of nationalist reform in the time of Josiah and reflected the needs and the social status of the Levite caste. So if you look at the second book of the law, it's really about the Levite caste. It's about that the Levites need to be the rulers. And what it's doing is setting it up to where worship will be in Jerusalem alone. Okay. So they find this document, they go to a prophetess named Huldah, and Huldah says, this is legit, to use our expression today. So they adopt it as a part of the canon of the Bible eventually. Now, it's worked on and changed and adapted since this time. Okay, but are we getting it that all of a sudden there's another book of writing? Yes? And Josiah reads this thing and he goes, wow, we are way out of line. And so he begins to get rid of these worship places, the high places. But these high places were actually places that were declared sacred in an earlier period of Israel's history. Yes, these are the places. Remember, Abraham's always building the um, little temple, not worship spaces, and, and they, they build them constantly when they're on their journey. Yes, these are those, those, are those places. Um, now, they've become... They've shifted to where they are about some of the gods of the other spaces. But as we'll see, it's kind, of, it's kind of all mixed together. Okay, so this began a concerted attempt to remove idol worship from Judaism. But the earliest archaeological evidence indicates that the worship of idols were part of Hebrew culture before and after this event. So what I want to say is I think in this period of the literary prophets, there's a cultural war between word and image. Okay, so this is just I'm quoting this from a webpage page uh, produced by the Toe Project. I have no idea what that toe stands for, but, but anyway, it was a nice concise summary. A prophet spoke God's word to people who had in one way or another distanced themselves from God, and this is kind of the traditional view. In one sense a prophet is a preacher, but in marketplace terms a prophet's often a whistleblower, particularly when an entire tribe or nation is turned away from God. One of the fundamental complaint and concern was the worship of idols. Reflected in the prohibition on images in the Ten Commandments, there's the actual Ten Commandments. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on the earth beneath or the waters below. And some people take that very seriously. No images at all. There are Protestant churches, no stained glass, no pictures, no images. The Protestants destroyed a lot of Catholic churches because they had images and they tore Jesus off the cross. And it was kind of a hideous period there. But this whole idea of the prohibition of images, what I want to look at, and I went too fast there, is that it's actually kind of a two-part thing. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I'm a jealous God. Okay, we'll leave jealous God to another talk. But what I wanted to think about is, is it a prohibition on making images or a prohibition on worshiping them? Yes? Does that make sense? Because one kind of leads to the other. If it's a prohibition on all images, we're in real trouble for the reasons that I'm going to talk about. For one thing, if I start talking to you about Abraham, let's say Abraham and his son Isaac, you immediately pictured a person, didn't you? And you pictured Isaac, and you saw a sheep, (laughs) or a ram, I think it's a ram. Anyway, you can't think without pictures. So we're in trouble if we can't picture Okay, just quickly, the priests were to oversee, I I really hadn't thought about it, but priests were mostly involved in like sacrificing animals and things like this at this time. And they were also supposed to be the teacher of the law. But what happens in the period of literary prophets is the kings aren't really doing what they're supposed to do and the priests aren't doing what they're supposed to do. So we end up having these kind of crazy lay people and they all had other jobs. Most all of them had other jobs. Some of them were priests, uh, others, like I said, had other jobs. We'll talk about that later. Now, you can't read that, but at least it's there on the website when it's posted. They're the prophets of Israel, and is, this is the period of the split kingdoms, right? Israel is um, what later becomes Samarita, and then Judah is down below the southern kingdom. These are the prophets of Judah, and I obviously I can't talk about all 17 of them, So we'll probably highlight some as we go along. The prophets of the captivity and the prophets of the return to Jerusalem. Okay, I want you to see that there's a historical line of them that goes from the period of the split kingdom through the times that they're in the captivity and then after. That's very important because in the Hebrew Bible, the emphasis is on God throughout history from creation to the return to Jerusalem. That's the way the Bible is laid out in the Jewish Bible. It's a historical book. All right, so this is a really fanciful depiction of the god Moloch. And in the traditional view, one of the stunning tragedies of the people of God was their persistence in pursuing the worship of many gods of their pagan neighbors. Common practices of idolatrous worship included offering their children in the fires of Moloch and ritual prostitution with every imaginable lewd practice on high places, on the hills and under every green tree. Okay, that's really kind of a very exceptional view, not the common practice of what people did in terms of idol worship. Kiel and Uchlinger, Uchlinger described hundreds of artifacts found in Israel and Judah throughout the entire monarchical period, many of them images of gods. The early Hebrews not only practiced idolatry, but polytheism, right up until the late monarchical period. There's no evidence that the Israelite people were moving away from the use of images and worship. And We'll look at some stuff. One other thing I wanted you to notice, that images of fertility goddess continued to be found in private homes until the time of the Babylonian exile. So pretty much all throughout Israel's history. Israel and Judah's history, actually. All right, archaeological evidence. This is a walk away from Jerusalem, a temple, and they found this. These are some of the idols there at the temple. The first temple would have already been built when this was in it. It indicates that in Judaism that idolatrous worship practices were just kind of alongside the practice of Judaism. Literally alongside, it's only a day's walk, half a day's walk. So, finds recently discovered at Tell Malta provide rare archaeological evidence for the existence of temples and ritual enclosures in the kingdom of Judah in general and Jerusalem region in particular prior to the religious forms throughout the kingdom at the end of the monarchic period, the time of Hezekiah and Isaiah. Concentrating ritual practices solely at the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, are we getting the pattern here? This kind of worship is all throughout, and it's actually in Jerusalem as well. When they find the book, they begin to attack all of these places, tear them down, and centralize worship in Jerusalem, which is to the advantage of the Levites. I'm looking at this both politically and historically. So what is happening is a shift from this idea that God is everywhere to God is in one place, and a shift away from the God speaks to us face-to-face to God has to speak to us through written words. We're not all the way there yet. Of course, the prophets speak, right? But what do they do? They also write them down. They're right at that shift. This is an important shift in the history of humanity, the shift from oral culture to literate culture. We tend to glorify a literate culture we tend to think being literate is, is just the, the only way to live or whatever, but <clears throat> many cultures did quite fine without it. And many cultures in the world developed other kinds of literacies. We'll talk about that. <clears throat> so how did objects become idols? They had a ceremony, an animation of a statue. So they'd make a statue. It could be out of stone or it could be out of wood. Uh, and they would magically open its mouth so it could breathe and speak. Now, Isaiah wrote the longest diatribe against idols (laughs) that we have. We'll see later. There were actually three Isaiahs. This is a later Isaiah. But what he says is, it's so absurd that you bow down before the things your own hands have carved. That does seem absurd, right? I carved this thing, and now I'm going to worship it. He said, You should fall down before an image, worship it, cry out to it, Save me, thou art my God, it's ignorance and folly. So my question is, why do we still do it? Anyone could see that it's a dumb idea. Why do people persist? I mean, if you handed me Jimi Hendrix guitar, it would be Jimi Hendrix guitar. There's no way that I could not go like sweet. Can I play it? Are you, are you with me? There's a something in us that responds. I don't know about you, but I, when I travel in Europe, usually I go to cathedrals because that's what you do, right? And uh, some of them, you go in and you just feel this stillness. You can feel this power. You know what I'm saying? Like there people have worshiped here. I felt that in other kinds of spaces, just places that are considered sacred. You're like, wow, this, this feels different. So people get this idea. So why did it persist? Like I say here, it's amazing to me there's so much writing about the prophets condemning idol worship, berating Hebrews for becoming involved in it, mocking other peoples who believed in it, blah, blah. But at the same time, there's little talk in the modern period about why idol worship until the modern period, why it was so attractive. Many explanations offer the priests and kings promoted idol worship as an avenue to social and political power. This is the one you get on the History Channel, right? They convinced everybody that if we killed a bunch of people, then the sun would rise. I'm like, if it wasn't built in them, they'd be like, that's a stupid idea. You know what I'm saying? If there wasn't something in them that that responded to that, anybody would go like, you know, okay, let's, let's kill some people and the sun will rise. Well, let's just wait and see if it rises anyway. Wouldn't you be the first one to say that? I'd be the first one to say that. Others may say that Hebrews caved into peer pressure from surrounding cultures, which, of course, is in logic called begging the question. Where does this idea come from that not only are there gods, but that we can make images of them that could speak to us? Which, by the way, is kind of cool, isn't it? I mean, there's a coolness factor to this. There's a Harry Potter thing to it that you could, like, put something in front of a stone statue and it would talk to you. Yeah? That appeals to us. If we don't see that it appeals to us, then we're not going to understand how anyone could fall back into it. So, psychology today says, "Well, we need to know why." (laughs) The reason, if we know the reason for things, we know how to respond to them. Instead of just going, "You stupid Hebrew people, you're always falling into idolatry," or anything else about that, we could say, "Well, wait a second. There's a reason for people to do this now." By the way, this is my way of thinking about everything. If you don't understand the reason why somebody's doing you can argue with them the rest of your life. Not going to happen. But if you identify with the reasons that they're upset, the reasons that they question, yes? I don't see this going on in politics right now. I don't see people going like, what are your reasons? You're, a, you're an intelligent person. You have good reasons for what you believe. Tell me about that. Let's see if we can find some space. Yes? And some people have stupid reasons, but there's still reasons. I mean, some of them are based in fear, some of them are based in unreality, true. But unless you research that, you don't know. Okay, so you can tell by this picture. I'm going to give five reasons why I think idolatry still kind of clicks and makes sense to people. Words and logic don't address what Carl Jung, my favorite psychologist, I don't know about you guys, but Carl Jung is just remarkable. He says it's a religious attitude. Here's a quote from him. One is a Catholic or a Jew or some other denomination and people think that is religion, but that is only a specialization of a certain creed which has nothing to do with the religious attitude. The religious attitude is quite different and it is not conscious. You can profess whatever you like in your consciousness, but your unconscious attitude is quite different. I think we can all identify with that. There are parts of even our own faith that make more sense to us, that touch us, that we feel. And there are parts where like, I, I feel distant from that. I don't. That doesn't make as much sense to me because it's unconscious, it's built into us. There's a feeling that the world is more than what it seems to be. Does that make sense? And a lot of us have it. In fact, Jung would say all of us have it to some extent. So you can't argue away people's religious attitude can't just say that's crazy, because it's built into you, and it's unconscious. Rudolf Otto came up with the idea of the numinous. I think C.S. Lewis picks up on this theme, too, later on. What he says is this. The vast majority of human beings have a natural sense or feeling of spiritual mystery. I even know some atheists, and they still have a feeling that something else might be going on. (laughs) They're just like, I don't really see it, and I, I don't see it based on science and reality. But at the same time, I know what you mean. There's a sense of mysterious power that's inviting us. It's both fascinating and enchanting. I love this sentence. Children are frequently mesmerized by religious what? Pictures, symbols, and architecture. When I was a kid, I had that Jesus knocking on the door picture in my bedroom. Stare at that thing. Just kept looking at it. What's the door? <laughs> What's he doing? All right, a sense of a ghost-like presence. The other day, I heard somebody use the old expression "Holy Ghost" instead of "Holy Spirit." I just laughed out loud because "Ghost" just sounds so silly to me. The Holy Ghost. It's like call it Spirit. It. Holy Ghost just makes it sound, you know, casper or something. But <clears throat> this idea that there's a presence in the world. Yes? And we all, from children, recognize this, don't we? This makes us search for the spiritual and the religious and the world around us. That's why I think everybody in here is here. We felt something in ourselves. This place, this faith, matter. So about 90% of the world today is religious in some sense. Yes? It's just built in us. He calls it the numinous, this feeling that something else is going on beyond our power. When you think about it, just even in AA, right? First thing of that there's a higher power and you submit to a higher power. It's like It doesn't even have a name to some cultures. The great spirit. There's a high power. All right. Another point I wanted to make is that the word versus image split denies the reality that words create pictures. There's a study by Lakoff and Johnson called Metaphors We Live By. Fascinating book, and it's all online. You can just, you know, download it and read it. (coughs) They point out things like this. Metaphors are not just little things we add to things to make them pretty. They're how we think. Yes, did I lose my train of thought? Where's the train? Where are the tracks? I got off track. Huh, my brain's a train. Now it's a stove because I'm going to put it on the back burner. <laughs> right? And I'm going to reprogram myself. Now I'm a computer. And it's like whatever thing we invent, we think that's our brain. Who knows what's next, right? Are we getting it? So, and then metaphorical domains are how we think about the whole thing. So our love is on the rocks. So apparently when you're in love, you're on a ship. Yes, we're on the rocks. we even call it friend-ship. Are you with me? We're all in the same boat. (laughs) Are we getting it? We think through metaphors. If I don't understand something, someone says string theory, I'm like, well, it's really like string. And I'm like, okay, I understand string. Are you with me? We can't think without them. As a teacher, I'm always seeking them. What's a good metaphor for this? What is a metaphor for teaching? Is it depositing information like in a bank? Is it soaking up stuff like a sponge? Is it gathering stuff like wheat? I'm going to gather some ideas. You see what I'm saying? A friend of mine, I actually uh, a guy that I'm working with him on his dissertation, He's writing his whole dissertation on metaphor and how the metaphor that someone conceptualizes writing in determines their reaction to writing. If they put the metaphor of chore on it, they don't want to do it, right? They put the metaphor of exploration on it. Ah, Now I'm on a ship. I'm going to see where it lands. (laughs) Planting seeds, garden metaphors. A lot of teachers use garden metaphors. I plant stuff. I try to cultivate it, right? Are we getting the idea? So they said, metaphors pervasive in everyday life, not just in language, but in thought and action, our ordinary conceptual system in terms of which we think and act is fundamentally metaphorical in nature. We cannot think without images. The very prophets that forbid idolatry employed vivid metaphors, which create mental images from Isaiah, but now, O oh Lord, you are our Father, metaphor one. We are the clay and you are the potter, metaphor two. Yes? They're all metaphors, right? Is God literally our father? No, it's a metaphor of a relationship. Yes? Jesus says, I'm like a I, I want to take you under my wings. Jerusalem was a brood, my brood, right? Here's one from Hosea. Sons of Adam, they should be drawn with leading strings of love. Never wagon or was it more pains to ease the bridle on jaw, fed beasts so carefully. Ooh, that's not a fun one. But he's saying basically, I'm trying to draw you and I've got to pull you like a beast. I want it to be love, but I've got reins of whatever. Okay, so all through the prophets, they use these images, these metaphors. So let's take a step back. The rise of literate culture and the codification of asserting right as as sacred is another reason why there becomes this battle between word and image. Like, how could that be? Well, now we recognize, thanks to the work of, I think his name's Howard Gardner, that there are multiple intelligences. Have you heard of this? This has really changed the way people teach, the way we think about teaching, is that this person here has a different way of relating to the world than this this person here. And if I don't gear my messages to them, then I'm only appealing to one kind of thinker. School traditionally uh, appeals to, guess what? Written language thinkers. Yes, so everything's in books, and we get this idea that that's how you found the answers in life, to read books, I hate to tell you. That's like saying, I'm a doctor because I've read the book. You gotta do the praxis, don't you? You gotta make it happen. Okay, so here are, the, here are the different ones that they've kind of come up with now. Interpersonal, uh, my daughter has that in spades. She can make people do anything she wants to, and they don't even know it. She does it to me all the time. <laughs> but see, only one of them is verbal linguistic, yes? And then there's logical, mathematical. There are people like that. They just they can't read or write that well or aren't interested in it, but man, they can do math. They can uh, build buildings, uh, There's naturalistic. There are people just nature smart. I had a friend in college like that. She could name everything in the forest. Like, wow. And she'd just have me bending down. Look at all the stuff just in this little bitty puddle. Like, holy smokes. She just had a feel for it. Interpersonal. Picture smart. There's images. Music smart. Yeah, I'm like that. I just understand music. I get it. And body smart. Some people are just good dancers, good athletes. They just understand their bodies. Does that make sense? Okay, but when we say that only word smart is the only one, we've got a very truncated view of human understanding. So, verbal intelligence and learning through written words is a subset of verbal intelligence, right? You can be very verbally intelligent and still not very book smart officially. So why try to eliminate a whole valid mode of perception? Well, there are other historical reasons going on here. One of them is images are associated with the feminine, with the goddess. This is Babylonian culture, which they were surrounded by for a lot of of this period. In Jeremiah, and he's the one that's going to say, submit to the yoke of Babylon, the ones who worship this goddess. This is Ishtar. We get the word star from her name. Yes, Ishtar. We get Easter from her name. Wow. Okay. See the children gathering sticks, the father lighting fire, the mother kneading dough, and all to make cakes for the queen of heaven. See how they offer libation to alien gods despite me. Yet not to me do they do despite, the Lord says, rather themselves. Every hope of theirs shall fail them. Let's go over to this one. Now this is much later in the book. When Jeremiah is again berating them for falling into idol worship, particularly the worship of the feminine goddess. And this is what the people say. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven and offer drink offerings to her. Just as we, our fathers, our kings, and our officials did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Proof that idol worship was going on in Jerusalem all the way until before the Babylonian captivity. At that time we had plenty of food and good things and we saw no disaster. In other words it seems to work. But from the time we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven we listened to you in this earlier chapter (laughs) pouring out drink offerings to her we have lacked everything and have been perishing by a sword of famine. Okay, so two other arguments. Both women and men had power in the feminine cults that wasn't uh, male dominated male focused as you might imagine women could be priestesses women had power in these cults so a lot of women seeing that they didn't have power in judaism in hebrew belief were attracted to this because they could have some authority and they, and it seemed to kind of set up an equality between men and women as we'll see Ancient peoples everywhere worshipped a mother goddess, very similar language to found in the Bible. This is a prayer to Ishtar. Sounds pretty familiar. Unto the queen of the gods, unto whose hands are committed at the behest of the great gods, unto the lady of Nineveh, the queen of the gods, the exalted one, unto the daughter of the moon god, the twin sister of the sun god, and unto her who ruleth all kingdoms, unto the goddess of the world who determineth decrees, unto the lady of heaven and earth who receives supplications, unto the merciful goddess who hearken to entreaty, who receiveth prayer, who loveth righteousness. I make my prayer unto Ishtar, to whom all confusion is a cause of grief. The sorrows which I see lament before thee, I incline thy ear to my words of lamentation. Let my heart be open to my sorrowful speech. Turn thy face to me. Does this all sound pretty familiar? I read the Psalms. Very familiar. O oh, lady, so that by reason that hear of the heart of thy servant may be made strong. And it goes on. The sorrowful one and my, are your humble servant. So he's basically thanking her for all she's done for him. And how she made him the ruler of the kingdom. You probably know this. What's this called? Ishtar's Gate. It's one of the gates to Babylon. It's amazing. Look at that. They found that. There it is. It was built in 575 BCE. Crazy. The threat of the feminine also found form in this whole thing, don't marry foreign women. Foreign women were blamed for bringing in the worship of other deities. Here's the great, this is Malachi, who's one of the last of the, the 17 literary prophets. Here's the great wrong in Judah. Here are the foul deeds done by Israel and Jerusalem. Judah, that once once content to be set apart from the Lord, has profaned that holy estate, has taken wives that worship a God he knew not. Yet at the same time, in Jeremiah, the women said, when we burned incense to the queen of heaven, poured out drink offerings to her, did not our husbands know we were making cakes impressed with her image and pouring out drink offerings to her? They're saying our husbands were in collusion with this. They were in agreement with this. So what's happening here? Let's put this all together. Is it any accident that these are the literary prophets? There's this battle between the idea of word versus image. The thing is, the words being used about the goddess are very similar to the words being used about Yahweh. So, how do you battle this? You write them down. Does that make sense? You codify. They were doing this also. They were codifying. Writing was, of course, invented in this area. (coughs) Well... We're learning some other things that it wasn't just invented in this area, but the earliest forms of writing were invented in this very area. This was a gradual becoming of literate peoples. The Babylonians were literate. So the literary prophets emerged precisely during the time that alphabetic cultures strove for ascendancy. Are we seeing that it's really a battle? Okay? What's going to happen is what we now call the people of the book. Yes, There are three religions that are called the people of the book. What are they? Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Yes, they're the people of the book. Mormons would also be a people of the book, right? That the book itself becomes sacred. It's interesting, when I studied Hinduism, when you read the Bhagavad Gita, it basically says, if you understand this, throw the book away. Don't worship the book. It's not the book. It's the God who brought you the book, <laughs> right? If you get the point, throw it away. But we are obsessed with the book, are we not? When you go to answers, you've got to go find, you've got to look at the book, they're the people of the book. You look to the book for answers, to the point that in Proverbs it says stuff like, don't go into the world, don't get involved with people, just read books, right? Think about the monks and where Catholicism went, what they sit around and do all day. They copied books. Some of them didn't even understand the language they were copying. But they were sacred. So we began to worship the book, which I think is kind of missing the point too, isn't it? Isn't it? Okay, so they're called the literary prophets because the words of each were being written down. As separate pieces of literature. Rather than being spread through the books of history. As the earlier prophets were. Aha. That's why we have these 17 other books. Okay. What else is happening here? This is the Jewish order of the Bible. If you've. You know. Looked at your Bible lately. You realize this is not the same order that yours is in. First five. Pretty similar. The Torah. Right. But next are the prophets. And these include prophets from different periods, right? The, the the prophets that are just in the histories and some of the prophetic books, Jeremiah and Isaiah. And the 12th, they're all in the middle of the book. You see it? Then over here are the poetical books, the Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. Then the Song of Psalms, Ruth, Lamentations, Esther, and Ecclesiastes. Things get really strange towards Esther and Ecclesiastes. If you've read them lately, they really challenge a lot of the ideas of a lot of the previous texts. And it ends in the historical books, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. A lot of people debate whether Daniel is historical, and I don't think it's historical in the sense that the other ones are. But Ezra, Nehemiah is definitely a historical book. It is really odd, and uh, everything's all out of order. (laughs) It's like this mishmash of stuff. But it's basically, and then it ends in Chronicles. What the heck? So the point of this is, God intervened in history, beginning with creation, but stepping in especially in the time of Abraham, picking one people to be his people. Yes? So the Bible is about that history, and it ends on the history. Are we seeing it? But it also goes, interestingly enough, writing to writing, but it moves towards a more oral culture to a more literate culture. Are we seeing it? In the Hebrew order, the Solomon is the last king to speak directly to God conversationally, which is like in the middle, not even really the middle of the book. The prophets then serve as mouthpieces and their period lasts until the fall of Jerusalem. There's a logic to this as well. Well, Jerusalem has already been destroyed once by the time we we get the Bible codified. Yes, they know it can happen. So you can't count on Jerusalem anymore. But you can count on a written record, no accident, that they're going to canonize certain books and say, this is now our relationship to God. This is our covenant. Ezra and Nehemiah establishes the Tanakh as the voice, the word of God. The word of God, not the image of God. The word of God. So, God is now to be found when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah. What do they do to re-celebrate the opening of the temple? They read. Yes. Whereas before they might have just someone got up and make a speech in the beginning. Moses, blah blah blah. Right. Usually that's the way it went. No, they read. So they've shifted from a culture where someone stands up and tells the story to a culture where someone does what? Reads the story. So what happened? In the Greek period, this is when Alexander had taken over and uh, now they're ruled under the Ptolemies. It's reorganized. It still reflects the ascendancy of the written word, but now it's, it's shifted. Look what happened here. The Christian order follows the Greek period and they move these, all these three things around, right? They take the historical books, they move them back here Shift the writings and the prophets, so we end with the 12 prophets. That's a significant shift, isn't it? Can't help but think, wait, that's setting up the whole stage for this idea that there could be another prophet, that God has gone silent, and now there's going to be, we're waiting for another prophet or a Messiah. It really sets it up that way. But that's a Greek way of looking at things, that somehow we're going to move not toward the end of history or, or the settlement of Jerusalem again, but with the prophets. Does this make sense? So the literary prophets and the thing that God has spoken, but he also, now it's written down. So in the Jewish order, the history of God's relationship with the Hebrew people from creation to the return to Jerusalem. makes sense. Ending on Nehemiah reestablishes the authority of Jerusalem in the priesthood and the priesthood. Very important as well the emerging Jewish canon. But what happens, the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek because the Jews, most Jews didn't know Hebrew anymore. They spoke Greek. Jesus spoke Greek. According to the recordings of his words, he spoke Aramaic and Greek, some Hebrew occasionally. Greek perspectives were changed in the way the Bible was read. So the new order still represents a shift from oral to literate culture, but it placed literary prophets at the end. It emphasizes the rule of kings and the priesthood. That makes sense, right? That's not going to be so important anymore in the Greek period. Why? They know. Jerusalem isn't going to last forever. They're also starting to think more like Greek people, and we'll see in just a second. It emphasized the ascendancy of speech, especially as codified in writing, as the arbiter of human life. Okay, I'm hitting the wrong thing. Sorry, I probably just shot somebody in the eye with a red light. I'm sorry. I hit the wrong button. All right, the New Testament writers relied on the Septuagint, or Septuagint, which um, was the Greek version of the Bible. So they used that one, not the Hebrew Bible. In the Gospel of John, the blending of a Greek view of the word, the divine logos, they had believed, the Greeks had believed, and I talked about this in a previous lecture, the Greeks had believed um, for a long time. And this idea that the world, that thing that holds the world together is this divine logos, which we get logic, we get logocentric, we get logos for company names. It means word. It's just Greek word for word. So that somehow that what holds everything together is God's word. And the Greeks had this idea, and then John comes along and states this crazy idea, that that logos that the Greeks have been worshiping is what? Yes. And you can feel him like creeping up on it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He's creeping up on it, but he finally gets to it when he says, and the word was God. Yes. He could have kept it more like with God, next to God, Okay, so we end up with Malachi being the last book of the Bible. The Christian version, even greater emphasis on the written word, by ending with the literary prophets. It doesn't end with the history; it ends with the literary prophets. It doesn't end with Jerusalem or the priesthood; it ends with these prophetic people who could speak and activate God's word in the world. Okay, the battle continues. I found this this website. Okay, look at the title of the website. Now I need the little thing. What's he say? Can you read it? We learn God's way through words. He has this long diatribe on this. But you see my point. Spiritual concepts are hard to get across through images, but in comparison, they're easy to get across in words. Words are far more descriptive than any picture. He even quotes the thing about a picture tells a thousand words and them, or uh, worth a thousand words. Wait. Do you hear what you just said? We, we are to think of them in terms of, okay, it's precisely what God has told us to do in his word, in terms of the way of life. We are to think of them in terms of words and reason them through words and discuss them with words and teach them with words. Okay, we got it. But I think uh, I don't know if I could put that in words. Could you put that in words? How about that? How about that? Okay, so obviously the church has adapted, <laughs> has it not? <laughs> also, I want to question this whole thing. God loves kids. That website. Destroying idols, I'm like, what does that look like to me? Well, it looks a little bit too much like this when the Christians tore down all the pagan temples, and now we lost all those statues. And you know, a lot of these things that we think were destroyed by time, they weren't. They were pulled down by Christians intentionally. And then, of course, there's Henry VIII, destroying the Catholic churches and knocking all the windows out. We lost all of that as well. And it continues. The Germans burning the synagogues. And it continues. The Taliban destroying idols. I'm like, really? Is the point the stone itself, or is it what you do with it? So I'm going to suggest an alternate approach, and of course I'm going to mention... Rhetoric. Visual rhetoric is when we use images in order to convey messages to other people, right? We've been doing it through newspapers for a long time. We all know the image of the Kent State shootings. Yes, we know the image of the little girl in the street that almost ended the Vietnam War where she'd been hit with napalm. Yes, images can change the world, can't they? Images of 9-11, etc. All right. But I think the prophets used images. Darn it, Jeremiah did. Make a yoke out of straps and crossbars and put it on your neck. I don't want to get that one, do you? Those things are heavy. I don't want to walk around in that dumb thing. But he does. And then he goes around telling the king and the priests and all of the people, if any nation bow its necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, serve him, I will let that nation remain in its own land to till it and to live there, declares the Lord. Was this a happy message? Like, who is this nut running around in a yoke? You couldn't help but notice, could you? Huh, got my attention. What if God came in the door right now with a yoke on? Like, okay, either he's a nut, or maybe that means something. And they took it to mean something. So he became a visual image. Yeah, he became an image of what his message was. Put the yoke on. And in order to say, I believe that, I'll wear one myself. I gave the same message to Zedekiah, the king of Judah. I see this part was written by Jeremiah or at least written down directly as he spoke. Jeremiah didn't just wear the yoke over 2,000 years later. People made a film about him. So what are we looking at? An image. When I'm putting these together, I feel funny if I have a lot of slides without images. I feel like where my image learners going to get the information alright here's some things that I think maybe are the words of the prophets today these aren't necessarily Jewish prophets or Christian prophets but I do believe nonetheless people are trying to use image today how about that one we eat the the poor to feed the west (laughs) Ronald McDonald as the devil wow that's pretty vivid how about that one I saw that and, like, huh. Huh. Yeah, you just kind of keep looking at it, like, huh. How about this one? Forget your money, I want change. Ooh, a pot. America's devouring its children. That's Grendel, by the way. That's an image of Grendel who eats the, you know, from Beowulf. There's a graphic one. Jesus holding Christmas packages. Wow. You can't put that in words, can you? You could, but it would take a long time. And I don't know if it would have the same impact. How about this one? Wow. Now, you may agree or disagree with these images, but by gosh, I think it's still going on today. And I think that it says, no, no, you hold it like this. Wow. All right, let's sum up. (laughs) The literary prophets exemplify the period of transition from an oral to a written culture, yes? From when God speaks to, to God speaks through. And it was God speaks to, right, Moses, Abraham. Then it was through the prophets, and then it's through the words of the prophets. So three steps Prohibitions on image, already an issue in oral culture, intensify, right? They were kind of coexisting, but with the, with the refinding of the Deuteronomy book, which most people think was actually just written then. It wasn't refound. It was actually written probably uh, in the other kingdom and then brought in. But um, what happens is when, when they read this again, it gets more oppressive toward images. People continue to be attracted to imagistic religion because seeing is the primary mode of perception. Isn't it? How do you know where you are? It amazes me when you put a blindfold on a person how quickly they emulate a blind person. You put a blindfold on them they emulate a blind person. They hold their head back just right away. Losing your vision just causes complete disorientation. Doesn't it? You ever turn out the lights too soon when you're going down the steps or something? (laughs) Or someone else turns the lights out, on you? Yes, it's a, it's a mode of perception. It's the way that we know our way around the world. And I don't think it's summable by words. It's, it never is. There are paintings. I could never explain why I like that. Or songs. Yes? Some of the logic of the condemnation of idolatry makes sense, doesn't it? How can you worship a stone that you carved? However, prohibitions on images were motivated, I think, also by hostility to imagistic thinking in general. Sort of baby with a bathwater kind of thing. Just don't think in images. Kind of like the parent who just goes way overboard to get you to stop doing something. I was just reading a book where the mother grounds the daughter to keep her from dating somebody, so she grounds her forever, quote, forever, or until you break up with this guy. That's like, baby, bathwater, that's not really how you treat children. Okay, and also by feminine power. Fears of imagistic thinking persist, despite the fact that language itself is metaphorical imagistic at its very core. So there is no word versus image. It's just what we do with words and what we do with images. Can you see where I'm going to go? I think you can. Is Exodus prohibition and makes making images in total or against the danger of worshiping them? And should we also hold words accountable? Should we worship words or should we use them as God posts? Should we understand images and use them as God posts or worship them? I think either way is kind of unhealthy, and we've seen results of people worshiping particular passages and then making that the only thing they believe in. That doesn't usually bode well for other people that don't believe in that passage. A more realistic approach, I think, would be to recognize the need for word and image, both. And I think we see in the Acts of Jeremiah and Hosea, who actually we'll talk about later, but actually named his children messages to the world, which is kind of bizarre when you think about it, to name your children your message. That word and image, I think, can work together. And of course, we have to end with Simon and Garfunkel's song, The Sounds of Silence, and the people bowed and prayed. What's it start with? (laughs) Hey, wait! Paul Simon's a Jewish guy. This—he's using—he's tapping into some, uh, some interesting imagery here, isn't he? To the neon God they made, and the sun flashed out its warning, and the words that were forming—the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls. Man, I, ever since I first heard that line, I was like, sweet. I mean, that is where it happens. And we need to recognize that these prophets, the literary prophets, were those kinds of people. They were coming in from the edges. They were saying some things that weren't very popular. And I'll show you, this is my favorite, I think, modern-day prophet, Banksy. Now, are you guys familiar with Banksy's work? You ought to be. <laughs> now, Banksy might not even be one person. Probably isn't. It's probably like a collection of artists. But uh, you can see, I mean, what would it be without the rat? And then, because he painted the rat on there. You want know, see that? But if graffiti changed anything, it would be illegal. I love it. You have to think about it for a second. Graffiti is what? Yeah. So this guy is putting graffiti art all over London or this school of people. I don't know. Um, never been seen, which seems impossible, doesn't it? Because these things are everywhere. They pop up everywhere. But I think we have a good example of somebody who really cares about the world like the prophets did and is trying to put these kind of things up. So check out Banksy. So thank you. This is Q and A time, I think. Is it Q and A time? We're
0: gonna begs the question. Then <laughs> We're gonna beg bunch- another question. Is, is, is what Punches Pilot said? What is truth? Whether it's words, images, metaphor, or uh, whatever.
1: Let's face it, the truth is always somewhere else. It's not in the words, right? It's not in the image. But we can get it through it. Exactly. All right, here's one of my thoughts on truth that I tell my students. There are things that are true in a different way than the things that we talk about truth. Like if you say, uh, did Aristotle live or not, we could argue and, you know what I'm saying? But if we say something like, someone says something to me and I just go like, ouch. You know what I'm saying? Oh, that hurt. That's true. I can't argue with that. Am I making any sense? So there are different kinds of truth. To me, the truth to live by are the ones where... It just resonates like, you know, I can live by that. And that's going to make me a healthier person. That's the kind of truth I'm looking at. So yes, I think we debate about facts and truth and perspectives and all of us have different perspectives. But to me, all of us are still trying to find that truth that's beyond words, right? It, you just, your, your body and your mind and your spirit settle down and you go, that's, that's, that's real. Yes, I'm more concerned with that. And I think if you speak from that space, people listen. If you speak from a space like, I believe my truth and, you know, screw your truth, you get that audience. That's it. Am I making any sense? That's why I say when uh, people are protesting, somebody's got this sign, know this and the others know that. And I'm like, where's the person in the middle go like, let's talk. I'm going to carry a sign. Let's talk. I see both your points. I'm not an idiot.
0: For yeah. those of us who have the gift of sight, why should we not be now
1: teaching, preaching by pictures instead of from a pulpit? I think you can do in a both. classroom I think one of the problems with um, the history of Christianity is they assume that the words alone will do it when I think that only reaches a certain kind of an audience. But they also, at the same time, the Catholic Church recognized that a lot of people couldn't read, and they didn't understand the words, so they would put it in pictures, they would, and they'd put the stations of the cross. So the church itself became really this huge imagistic teaching device. So I think they recognized that, that you have to have both for different kinds of thinkers and learners. Plus, you can make it kinesthetic. You have to walk around. So that's a different kind of learner, someone who likes to have their hands on things, statues walking around and you can feel it. So yeah, I think that's kind of what I'm saying is that we can reject the idea of worshiping images, but I think we also, also ought to reject the idea of worshiping words and see it, at, not that the words aren't sacred, but that our relationship to them is not to bow down before them, but to, to understand our lives the lives of others through them it's not the words it's what's behind the words we have to we don't want to forget that it seems that with with images you have no control of people's response that's true words can be used to define people's response to images in other words yes to help them see if I show my students the Vietnam pictures they don't get it right. they didn't experience that So I think it's a fear of images. Because they can mean anything. Because they have no
0: control. Yeah.
1: I agree with you. And that's what I spend my life doing is how do we figure out, how do we use images and words together in ways that make both work better? Because, yeah, things don't speak by itself. You look at the 9-11 thing without any context. uh, I have that experience when I have international students. They come in and like, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know what you're talking about because they don't know what the image meant in a certain time. So yes, I think we need both, which is really what I'm trying to say today. <laughs> but yeah, I think we do want to control images. We want to control everything. And I think we ought to give up that idea too. We can't control anything. I can't even control what's happening in my life, but I can control how I react to it. And that's about it. That's what I taught my children. And it turns out pretty handy. Like you're not going to control anybody. Forget that.
0: When archaeologists have these finds, what
1: makes them think that things are idols? How do they know that? Could it just be art? That's a darn good question. (laughs) And I don't know their answer, but I think they judge it by the kind of room that they set up and the fact that nobody did that. Like, Europeans came up with the idea of putting art in rooms and looking at it. But culturally, nobody on the planet did it, and probably until maybe the Renaissance period. And even then, they didn't really do it. Like it was post-Renaissance, we came up with the idea of making a museum rather than just having the art be a part of a church or a part of a building or somebody's house. Does that make sense? So I don't think it would occur to them. And plus, they didn't distinguish between religion and reality, you know what I'm saying? They didn't have a religion, they lived a religion. I, does that make any sense? So nobody, like, chose to be Jewish. They just were in the middle of it, and um, that's what they did. So it makes sense to me, given that too, that they would easily adopt things around them just like people do today. Like, you can, I know a lot of people, if I just specify here are some things that are Christian and here are some things that are not, a lot of people that claim to be Christian will be like, well, I have some of those other beliefs. (laughs) And like, I think it's probably true of all time periods. There's kind of a... There's no pure or anything, I don't think. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that would be my answer. They probably have a much better answer in terms of they probably look for specific kinds of ways that it was set up.
0: I'll encourage you again as we get ready for worship. Um, Thank Dr. Lloyd for, again, another insightful um, presentation. Don't forget, if we're going to have a successful period after Dr. Lloyd, we need your questions so we can begin to plan the baskets up front. Drop them in. Enjoy your week, and we look forward to next week with Dr. Lloyd. Me too.